Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, this may be the most unusual Easter any of us will ever have, um, but I'm so glad you're taking time to uh, consider Jesus and to worship with us. Um, I miss you guys and I love you. And if you're a guest watching, my name is Bo. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're just going to look at Jesus together on this Easter morning. I want to invite you to open up a Bible uh, to the book of Isaiah. We will be in Isaiah 53. It's right about the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 53. Um, if you do not have a Bible in front of you, I really encourage you to get one. Even if you have an extra device, grab it. Um, type Isaiah 53 ESV. Google that. Um, we're going to be just walking verse by verse, phrase by phrase through this chapter. And I want us all to have it before us. Um, we are going to be covering Isaiah 53 verses 7 through 12 this morning. The title of this sermon is Like a lamb. As we're turning there, as we're getting our Bibles open, um, you know, for many of us, it's it's just a given. Of course, you're going to open your Bible when you come to church, when uh, it's Easter morning, and we want to we want to hear, you know, what is this all about? Um, and I want to I just want to say this. I know many of us um, have questions right now, have questions about our world and about truth in life and death. Why is this crisis happening and who's responsible and where is God and did he cause all of this or or did we cause all of this? Is this just random chance molecules mutating and, and where's the real hope and where can I find peace and rest? And these are all really important questions and, and hear me, what we need most today are not some pastor's thoughts, not the insights of a scientist, not what some politician says. Hear me, what you need today is to hear what God has to say. What we all desperately need is to hear from God. And God does have something to say about what's going on right now. God has spoken. And we can absolutely know what he says. The Bible is God's perfect and powerful and living book through which he still speaks to us with crystal clarity today. You don't have to wonder what does God think or what does God say or is this thought my thought or is this from God? Listen, God has given us a crystal clear book, the Bible. And when we open it and when we study it, we are hearing from God. And so this morning we are going to open the Bible and we're going to read the Bible and I'm going to do my very best to explain what God has to say about life and death and what happens when we die and, and all of these questions we're wrestling through. Now, there's no more significant day in history than the original Easter Sunday. And it's on the original Easter that God has provided the answer we need to all of these pressing questions. Now, we're gonna study 
the day, what happened on Easter through a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It's, it's a prophecy given to the prophet Isaiah. This was given 700 BC, which is 700 years before Christ was born. So this prophecy that we are about to read from God is 2,700 years old. Um, this this prophecy that we're about to read has been historically authenticated that these words were really written 700 years before Jesus was born. And just the accuracy of what is in these verses alone should shock us. These, these words we're about to read have been called the clearest explanation of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in the entire Bible. These verses are the heart of the Bible. These words have led those who, who know nothing about God to, to true saving faith and knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did for them. And so we're going to read together this morning the second half of this prophecy. Uh, this really is a, a part two. Uh, Travis gave the, uh, the first part on Good Friday. I'd encourage you to go listen to that. He dives into some of the context and who was Isaiah and why was this given. And we're picking up at verse seven. And we're going to read Isaiah 53, verse seven through verse 12. So I'm going to read uh, the words of God together. And we'll, we will pray and get into it. So let's read Isaiah 53. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, for the next few minutes, we ask that you would give us ears 
to hear from you. That we would understand and know and believe the most significant truths we will ever hear. God, what we just read are not the thoughts and insights or predictions of just some person, just some man. These are inspired of your Holy Spirit. These are the very words of God. And I ask God that that even in my own just human limitations, that I would just be faithful to explain what you have spoken. And I ask Holy Spirit, you would take this, your word, and it would go forth. And it would bring faith, Lord, that you would save more through the hearing of your words, that you would bring prodigals back home, God, that you would strengthen and feed the souls of your sheep, your people. We need you, God. We, we need to hear from you. Please, this book is alive, so help us be alive. Help us wake up. Help us hear and understand what you have said. We need you. I need you, Lord. We want to hear from you. Would you this morning reveal yourself, your saving arm, Jesus Christ? Amen. Well, do you remember being in high school? Maybe you're in high school. Maybe you will be in high school. But do you remember reading Shakespeare in high school? For me, honestly, I remember trying to read Shakespeare and it was just too beautiful and too profound to understand. I know, you know, you know, supposedly like this is the peak of English literature, but honestly, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. Even with all the notes in the side, I was, I was like, this is beyond me. Now, sometimes the Bible can feel like that. At least to me, it can feel like that. Now, these verses that we just read are so packed with profound truth. But often, I just, I get lost. I don't see it. I don't understand what it means for me or what it means about God. And so, honestly, I just struggled through these verses of scripture, these prophecies. And I read book after book after book just to begin to try to grasp, God, what are you saying? What does this mean? Uh, this particular prophecy, just, uh, just this prophecy alone, it changes the speaker four times. Okay. It, it begins, this prophecy begins. If you look down actually in Isaiah 52 verse 13, And the speaker is God. It says, behold, my servant. And this is God speaking. Then down in Isaiah 53, one, it changes and it becomes the people of God. Now the people of God are speaking. Then in verse seven, the beginning of our text, it changes and now it's the voice of Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah is speaking. And then at verse 11, it changes again back to God and it closes with the words of, of God. And I want, I want to give us a little roadmap of where we're going, how to follow along in case you get lost. If you take notes, this is just a helpful summary of these seven verses. Uh, we're, again, we're going to read phrase by phrase and unpack it. But to sum it up, here, here's how to sum it up. Verse seven speaks of the trial of Jesus. It's a prophecy about the trial of Jesus. Verse eight speaks of the death of Jesus. 
Verse 9 is the burial of Jesus. Verse 10 is the vindication of Jesus. Verse 11 is the salvation Jesus provides. And verse 12 is the victory of Jesus. The trial, the death, the burial, the vindication, the salvation, and the victory of Jesus. So let's dig in. Let's see together how God has so loved us through these verses. Verse seven, the trial of Jesus. Verse seven, the trial of Jesus. Again, let's look down. It begins like this. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Now, who is this man? Again, this was 700 years before Jesus was born. This wouldn't be clear um, to the the original hearers would just know this is some servant of the Lord. But now, later, and once this event has happened, we know that this he is Jesus. This is speaking of the last day of the life of Jesus. Now, even the details that we will read are astounding. The, the, the exactness of these details 700 years before this day happened. Now, we know this is the last day of Jesus. And if you remember, if you know anything about the story of Jesus, Jesus was wrongfully taken and accused by the Jews. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was mocked. And, and then the, the, our text goes on to say this. Yet he opened not his mouth. Imagine being falsely, imagine someone shows up at your house, they take you, they capture you, and they falsely accuse you, and then they they publicly humiliate you, and they beat you, and they sentence you to die for something you didn't do. And on top of it all, you decide, you know what? I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to cry out, this is wrong. What are you doing? I'm innocent. I haven't done what you're accusing me of. Now, the New Testament speaks of this moment when Jesus was captured and he was beaten and he was accused. And do you know what it says Jesus did? Uh, I'll read briefly. Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14. Jesus is before his judge, Pilate. And listen to what Jesus does. It says, But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. He opened not his mouth. All throughout the Bible, we see the people of God suffering Often unjustly, we see the people in slavery in Egypt. And what do they do? They cry out to God. We see David in the Psalms suffering. And what does he do? He cries out to God. We see the prophets being beaten and captured. We see Jeremiah. And what do they do? They cry out, God, what are you doing? Have mercy. This isn't right, God. But what does Jesus do when he's captured and accused and beaten? It says, he opened not his mouth. And then it goes on to say, verse seven, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep 
that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here the prophet compares Jesus of all things to a sheep. One of the most defenseless, submissive animals on the planet. It's been said sheep are known to lick the very hand holding the knife that is to slaughter them. Jesus, like a lamb, willingly, even lovingly, gives himself to his oppressors. And in a sense, he even kisses the the very hands who will take his life. Now, how can that be? Like, think about it. How can Jesus so willingly offer up his life in the face of injustice? If anyone cared about justice, it was Jesus. If anyone cared about truth, it was Jesus. And yet these men were lying and they bound him and they were beating him. And yet it says he doesn't even open his mouth to defend himself. Like, how can this, how can it be? You know, maybe, could it be that Jesus doesn't see himself as a victim of injustice and oppression? Could it be that Jesus, hear me, trusts the care and purposes of God, even in the face of oppression? Can it be that Jesus sees meaning in his suffering? Can it be that Jesus doesn't defend himself because he's actually participating in a plan, an eternal plan, even in his suffering? Let's move on. Let's look at verse eight. And this is the death of Jesus. It says this, it begins, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So we know he was taken, he was beaten, he was mocked. He doesn't open his mouth. He goes along with it. And then verse eight says, he was taken away. We know from the New Testament accounts that, that Jesus, after he was beaten and publicly mocked and humiliated, it, it even says the governor realized Jesus was innocent. Even in that moment, what he did is he condemned Jesus to die. He listened to the voice of the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. And so he had Jesus whipped and then sent him to another ruler where he was stripped down and they mocked him and they, they pierced his scalp with a crown of thorns and they spit on his face and they took a reed and they, they beat him with it. And then they, they took him away. They put a beam of wood on his back And they led him out and they paraded him through town out and up a hill where he would be nailed to this beam of wood and he would be hanged there to die. And then our text goes on to say, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? It says, 
of his generation, of all those people who were watching this happen, who considered it? What the prophet's saying is, is where were the righteous people? Where were the upright judges? Where were the courageous defenders of Jesus, of justice and law? Where even were his disciples? Where was his best friend? It says, who considered what was going on? Who considered as he was led up to this hill and he was laid on this wooden beam and his nails were driven through his flesh and as he was lifted up and hung there for three hours, who considered what was going on? And our text says he was, he was cut off out of the land of the living. Now that verb speaks of a, of a, it's more like he, he was hacked off. It's not some clean, quick cut. The, the death of Jesus wasn't this clean, quick and easy thing. He was hacked off of life. He was brutally beaten and hung on a cross gasping for air for three hours. He was hacked off from the land of the living. And our verse ends with these words, stricken for the transgression of my people. Just to rub salt in the wound, so to speak, he was innocent. He wasn't executed for his own transgressions, but for the transgressions of others. There has never been a more unjust action in human history than when Jesus was hanging on a cross. And as the text asks, who considered? I want to ask you, have you considered this? Have you thought about this, this act of injustice? You know, what's interesting is it speaks of his generation. Jesus was actually really popular in his generation. People loved his teaching. They loved his miracles. He had crowds upwards of tens of thousands of people. Even six days before this, people were praising Jesus. Tens of thousands of people were praising him. But at this moment, the moment of his public execution, all that popularity was gone. No one was there considering what was happening. Do your thoughts of Jesus resemble his generation? Yeah, maybe you like Jesus. You appreciate his teaching. He he lived a great life. He was generous. He, 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 He was very pious. But when it comes to his brutal, bloody death, you'd rather not consider it. Now, verse 9 goes on to speak of the burial of Jesus. Look what it says. And they made his grave with the wicked. We know Jesus died between two guilty men, two thieves. The wicked men were were hanging on a cross on his right and on his left. His company in his death were these two wicked men and all three of them hung there publicly scoffed at, mocked at, spit on, accused of being wicked men. And then it goes on to say, verse nine, and with a rich man in his death. This is again, just 
an astonishing detail 700 years in advance. And, and, what it's, and I want to read to us a New Testament account of this. Matthew 27, verse 57 says this. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone at the entrance of the tomb and went away. And so he, his grave was, he died among the wicked, yet with a rich man, he was buried. And then our text goes on to say, verse nine, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, it's speaking again of the innocence of Jesus. It says he has done no violence. Never in his life had his hands committed an act of violence. And it says no deceit in his mouth, meaning never had Jesus lied or sinned with his mouth. And the Bible often speaks of our mouth as a connection with, with, with our heart. And so Jesus never externally sinned and he never internally sinned. Jesus was perfect. And yet he died a sinner's death on a cross and he was buried. This is the worst day in human history. But the very next word in our text announces the unthinkable. Verse 10 begins, yet. In Hebrew, it's the word wa. And it speaks of a juxtaposition with what just came before it. We see an innocent man willingly giving his life, being beaten and accused and oppressed, hacked off from life, dying with the wicked, yet. And we hear in verse 10, read of the vindication of Jesus. Look with me at verse 10. It begins like this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, speaking of the Lord, has put him to grief. Now we have to notice something here. Because when you read verses seven, eight, and nine, when you read of the death of Jesus, this radical injustice, it's so easy to think This must be an accident. This must be some mistake. The disciples would have looked at their Messiah and and think, this can't be happening. This was our Savior, the Messiah. The one the, the prophecies spoke of who would save his people. And yet here he is in the prime of life, being oppressed and brutally mocked and accused and dying, hacked off from life. This must be some mistake. You know, honestly, as human beings, when we look at the suffering of the world, when we look at what's happening right now, when we look at our own life and how we suffer, it's so easy to think, what's going on here? 
This can't be right. This must be a mistake. But verse 10 says something shocking to the human ears. God willed it. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And this is why Jesus was willing to close his mouth and not defend himself and allow himself to die. Because hear me, this was no accident. This was the plan of God. It was the will of God. How could Jesus willingly go along with this injustice? Because he knew that he was in the very will of his father. But, but then you ask, well, how could that be the will of God? How could God allow that kind of injustice? How could God allow these wicked men to take his perfect innocent son and accuse him and humiliate him and leave him hanging there just trying to breathe for three hours? How could that be the will of God? How could God put him, his own son, to grief? What, what does this mean? Well, look at the rest of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. I just want to stop right there. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now here Isaiah brings up what would be very familiar to a Jewish person. He brings up the guilt offering. This was the last of the, the major offerings that a Jewish person would, would bring to God as an act of worship. He, he brings to mind this guilt offering. He says he makes his soul an offering for guilt. Now the guilt offering is the final and fullest animal sacrifice that a Jewish person would have performed in worship. And here's how it worked. When you were going throughout your day and you, your heart strikes you with guilt, all of a sudden, we know that feeling, you just feel guilty. You, you know you have committed a sin, a transgression. You, you know that you did something wrong and, and that sense of guilt just won't leave you. What this person was to do is they were to take a lamb or a goat and they were to bring it to the temple. And along with that lamb or goat, they were also to bring payment, like money, to, to make restitution for whatever wrong they had committed. For example, let's just say, uh, you steal a lamp from your neighbor. And then the next day you, you look at the lamp and you just realize, gosh, I stole that lamp. I'm guilty. So, so I, I, I need to go get a lamb or a sheep. And, and what I also need to do is take the price of that lamp, whatever it's worth, with interest and bring that with me to the temple. And then what you were to do is to lay your hand on the head of that animal and it would be a symbol that you are, you are transferring your guilt 
to that animal, that, that you are identifying, okay, this animal is now identified with my guilt. And then the animal was slaughtered and its blood was sprinkled on the altar. And then it was burned on the offering, on the, on the altar there. And then you would give the, the priest both the animal and that financial restitution. And he would declare, your guilt has been removed from you. Now, when we think about animal sacrifices in the 21st century, it likely sounds strange and even honestly barbaric to us. And you know what? It should. It should sound strange and barbaric because the, the point of an animal sacrifice was to visibly display both the cost and brutality of sin. It was a picture, this is what sin does. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. It's costly. Now, an objection to this practice would be this. And this, this, is, this makes sense. Hey, I willingly stole this lamp and you're telling me that this goat is gonna take away my guilt? What did this goat do? This is an innocent animal. It doesn't even have a conscience. It can't like willingly steal stuff. How could it be fair that my guilt is taken away by this goat? And how would that satisfy God? I mean, does God, is he just love the blood of goats and bulls? Does that somehow make God happy? Now here's the key, hear me. The Bible actually acknowledges that God did not take pleasure in these sacrifices. And it acknowledges that the blood of an animal has no power whatsoever to actually remove someone's guilt. So what's the point? Why, why did God institute this whole system of animal sacrifice? Here's the reason why he did it. All of these sacrifices were to lead people to trust that the day would come when God would provide a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice whose blood was actually able to remove guilt. And not just the blood of an animal, but human blood. The blood of a conscious being who knew what it was to sin. And not just any human, a perfect human. And not just a perfect human, the very divine son of God. The entire purpose of every animal sacrifice in the Bible was to point to the truth that one day the son of God, the second member of the Godhead would become a human being and would live a perfect life. And he would end his life being brutally killed, mocked, beaten, hanging on a cross. And as he hung there and his blood 
was being poured out on the ground, he would actually be offering up his very life as a perfect offering for the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is what we read in verse 10. Why was it the will of the Lord to crush Jesus? Because together they knew that Jesus would be offering up his soul as a perfect sacrifice for the guilt of the world. And as one would lay their hand on an animal, one must also lay their hand, so to speak, on Christ. And they too must say, it is, it is for my sin that this offering was killed. It is my guilt that nailed Jesus to the cross. It is for my transgressions that Jesus, this sacrifice, will die. He was killed for me. That is why Jesus died. And when our text explains that this great injustice was actually the plan of God, I love this. This very verse reveals, and do you know what? Jesus, when he made his own soul a sacrifice for guilt, he didn't stay dead. Look with me at the rest of verse 10. It says, when, he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, look what comes next. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, now remember in verse nine, we read, or verse eight, we read of his death. He was cut off from the land of the living. And in verse nine, he was buried. And verse 10 says, he's seeing his offspring. This very one who made a sacrifice for sin is seeing his days prolonged. The very will of the Lord is prospering in his hand. How can that be? Well, if you know the story of Jesus, after he died on that cross and was put in that tomb, three days went by. And on the third day, the morning of the third day, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. Death couldn't hold him. Our guilt couldn't hold him. Jesus was more valuable and more powerful than all of our guilt. And so he rose again. And as verse 10 says, he is now given offspring, which is those who will trust in him. And his days will be long, so long. In fact, eternity. That's how long his days will be prolonged. And forever God will bless the work of his hands. Jesus rose from the dead and now we, his offspring, if we trust in him, if we lay our hands on his head, so to speak, our guilt will be removed and, and, and he, we will be with him forever. 
And so, so far we've seen the, the trial of Jesus in verse seven, the death of Jesus in verse eight, the burial of Jesus in verse nine, the vindication of Jesus in verse 10. And next we see the salvation Jesus provides in verse 11. Read this with me. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Have you ever just had a long, hard, exhausting day of work? And then you get home, maybe you take a shower, you get clean, you eat some good food and drink, and then you just relax and feel so satisfied. This verse is saying, once Jesus finished his work on the cross and declared it finished, he is now immensely satisfied as he is resting next to his father in heaven. And then it says, he offers a way for the world to receive the benefit from his work. It says this, it says, by his knowledge, by his knowledge shall my servant make many to be accounted righteous. What does that mean, by his knowledge? This is simply what it means. That when you hear the news of what Jesus did, when you hear the knowledge, the truth of what he did, and if you believe that knowledge, not just believe with your head, but if, if that knowledge goes into your soul and your heart and you say, yes, I will, I will lay my hands on that sacrifice. I am one of the transgressors. Yes, I believe Jesus, the perfect one, was an offering for my guilt. What the verse says is Jesus will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. That is the greatest offer to humanity that will ever be available. If you hear this truth and believe it, listen, Jesus was killed for your guilt, and you then are forgiven and accounted righteous before God. Your iniquities will be taken away and borne by him and you will receive his righteousness. And this prophecy just ends by rejoicing in the news of what the Savior will do. We'll look at verse 12 to close. And here we read of the victory of Jesus. Let's read it. It says, therefore, this is God speaking, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God is saying, I will richly reward my son, Jesus. As a warrior enjoys the spoils after his victory, so Jesus, even though he appeared like he lost like he was just dead, like Satan and sin and death defeated him. No, he rose from the dead. And now those who trust in him will also receive and enjoy the spoils of his work. 
And, and who, who does it say in verse 12 enjoys those spoils? Who are the spoils of war for? Well, look what it says. He was numbered with who? The transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. Now I want to ask you, have you sinned against God? Have you transgressed against his perfect law? Have you gone your own way? If you have, then Jesus was killed for you. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many. Jesus came for transgressors. Jesus came for sinners. He didn't come for righteous people. He wasn't numbered with the righteous people. He came for sinners. And earlier in this prophecy, it actually says no one is without sin. It says, we've all like sheep gone astray. We've all turned away from God. I've turned away from God. If you've been invited uh, to listen to this from someone at this church, they've turned away from God and, and you have turned away from God. Every person who has ever lived has turned away from God, has sinned against God, has transgressed against God. Yet Jesus came to bear the sins of many to be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus came to die to make his soul an offering for sinful people like you and me. And so I encourage you to identify yourself as one of those transgressors and to believe this knowledge that the perfect son of God came and willingly gave his life to be publicly mocked, beaten, humiliated, and, and to even suffer the wrath of God, to be crushed by God for your guilt, to lay your hands on the head of that sheep and say, I acknowledge that I am guilty Yet this sacrifice has taken my guilt, has paid the price that I could never pay. I've sinned against God. My debt against God is, is eternal. Yet Jesus has paid the price. And if you would do that, if you would acknowledge that you have sinned, that you have transgressed, then Jesus says, you will be accounted righteous you will become one of my offspring, the very son or daughter of God. And as I rose from the dead, so you too will rise from the dead. And as I will live forever, so you too will live forever. And as this verse closes, it says, he makes intercession for the transgressors. This means that Jesus will stand before God on your behalf. You know, this virus is reminding us all that we are gonna die, that death could come. And when we die, we will all stand before a perfect and holy God. 
And we will all have a debt, transgressions, sins. But if you trust in Jesus, if you acknowledge, I am guilty, what this verse says is that when you stand before God one day, Jesus will be standing there too. And he will be making intercession for you. And what that means is Jesus will say to his father, this one is mine. This one is forgiven. This one is to be accounted righteous. Not because they were righteous, not because they earned it or tried hard or was a good person. No, they were sinful. Yet I made an offering for their guilt. I removed their guilt. I paid their debt. And now they are accounted righteous. I declare they are righteous. I give my righteousness to them. Jesus will say, this one, Father, is your son, is your daughter. And this one will be with us forever. So God, I thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, I ask you will make it powerful to every person who has heard this. You would remind us that though we have all transgressed against you, there is a way to be made righteous. And it's through our guilt offering Jesus that we are accounted righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. Holy Spirit, I ask you would reveal this truth in a saving way to those who don't yet know, who don't yet believe, who haven't yet identified their guilt and that they need a guilt offering, one big enough to remove all their guilt and pay all their debt. So Lord, I ask that you would save, you would save today. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if, if you have never put your trust in Jesus, um, we as a church would love to connect with you. I personally would love to connect with you. And so there's gonna be a link uh, right below this sermon and it's uh, just, it's realitycarpenteria.com slash connect. Uh, click that link and it's gonna take you uh, to a page with many options. Uh, maybe maybe you've uh, believed in Jesus and you've walked away from him for many years and, and you wanna get reconnected with him and with a church, um, also go onto that page. Maybe you're just new to our church and you aren't really connected. On this page, there's gonna be um, all kinds of different ways to uh, personally meet with someone, to get a call from someone, to get connected to a home group or a men's group or a women's group, even a youth group. And, and so we want you to be connected. Listen, we together are his offspring. If we've believed in Jesus, we need the family of God to, to make it, to walk with God together. So please go to that page, get connected. I love you and God, he loves you so much.